Welcome to Speaking of Mobile, a new podcast series about molecular biology and its training application in life sciences. I'm Dr. Gabriel Alves. And I'm Steve Lewis. Throughout our first seven episodes of Speaking of Mobile, we have explored CRISPR cell engineering, multiomics, exosome, and single cell analysis. And for today's episode, we are returning to the world of multiomics, and it's Dr. Ben Sun's turn to share his exciting work in this field. Ben is the head of biomarker genetics at Biogen, where he uses multiomics for biomarker discovery and disease prediction. In addition to his industry research, Ben also holds an MD and leverages his clinical experience to advance his work. We hope you enjoy our conversation. I guess I've got a quite a sort of unusual background in terms of how I ended up uh, in the Boston area. So I initially uh, trained in uh, clinical medicine at the University of Cambridge in the United Kingdom uh, across the pond, uh, where I did an integrated uh, MD-PhD program, uh, where during my PhD, I specialized in statistical genetics and genetic epidemiology. And after that, I practiced uh, as a clinician, or I think you call it physicians. Uh, and my sort of research interest during my PhD time really brought me back uh, into the research uh, area. And, and the field we work in is really uh, where industry uh, is doing a lot of really interesting work. Uh, and then that's what brought me uh, into sort of Bargen, uh, where there's a lot of excitement around using large-scale genomic data. Uh, and so that I've relocated from the UK to the Boston area and also Cambridge, but uh, Massachusetts rather than Cambridge, uh, UK. Currently, I am uh, within the human genetics group uh, at Bargen, where we use utilize large-scale uh, population data uh, and genomic data to help us answer a lot of uh, understanding in terms of disease pathology uh, and also uh, uh, contributing to development. Uh, it's great to meet you, Ben. Uh, thank you for, for being here and taking the time with us. I'd love to hear how you went from clinical medicine uh, to working uh, even more within programming and uh, what, it, what aspects of it are really interesting to you? There's both interesting aspects that drives what I do and what I want and my, where my passion lies. And also there's also quite a, an interesting change in directions. But what I sort of ended there uh, sort of through starting at my PhD, where I was always been interested in, you know, applying big data, which was popular at the time. Now is sort of diverging to machine learning and AI where I picked up a lot of the statistical uh, background and mathematical background uh, for applied uh, and applying it into sort of large scale data, which includes genomics and also large electronic health records. And I think coming from the clinical background gives me quite a nice way to interpret the data. I think that's where that hybrid cross-domain translation is really what drives me passionately uh, in terms of being able to do this and not many people are able to do that because they tend to stay in one the clinical domain or or stay in the methods or uh, statistical domain uh, alone but i think it really opens the uh my eyes to like a the bigger picture being able to bridge the gap uh, between the two 
You mentioned about AI. Um, I'm curious to hear your opinion about that. Uh, as we move forward, uh, AI is becoming increasingly more popular in various fields, uh, including molecular biology. What's your opinion in the use of AI, multiomics, and, and what do you think that will be the impact of AI in the future of this field? It's becoming a hot topic over the last few years, uh, especially with the emerging of large-scale um, computation and tech. The, the popularity is gathered a lot of interest and also a lot of academic research as well as industry research that really bolstered the field. The advancement has always been on the sort of method side, but also the computation as well. The computation ability has really enabled the training where, you know, if you take it back 20 years ago, there isn't that computing power to even do what we do now, despite the methods being there. But now with, you know, emergence of cloud computing, also we're getting more and more cores. Our laptops are now more processing power. We're getting more and more computing power really to accelerate that process, to really see that in, to, in theory we get this, but in practice, if we apply this to a large set of data, we can also get valuable and meaningful results. It's transformative in a lot of fields so far, for example, in self-driving image processing and now language recently as well. Uh, but there's also a lot of limitations. A lot of limitation really comes down to the amount and quality of the data that we come in. I mean, with healthcare, it's been notoriously difficult where, you know, diagnosis and pe uh, patient management, uh, the, the data itself is noisy. So obviously, the, you know, the famous saying of garbage in, garbage out, if you have bad data or if you have noisy data, if you have data not well curated, then the model's not going to perform well. And that's why we see this struggle to for machine learning or AI to really impact the medical sciences in as much as it has done for uh, things like imaging. But obviously the advances that's brought in definitely has moved us closer to uh, in terms of where we want to be. In this first season of the, our podcast, we were, you know, fortunate to have guests from various areas in training applications, molecular biology, uh, especially in exosome or extracellular vesicle research and all its potential in diagnostics and treatment. How familiar are you with uh, exosome research and, and, uh, and what, what do you think about the use of omics in it? The exosomes is something that's... Um is come up to the stage in recent years. It comes at a good time where omics research is becoming more and more mainstream, uh, especially with you know single cell sequencing, exosomes, and also previously the microbiome. So you're getting all sort of omics, you know, from the metabolomics to the proteomics, uh, and now you know exosomes, and obviously. That spans both the technology that's been measuring the omics. You're getting more and more proteins being covered um, at faster growing at a faster rate than ever. Uh, same with metabolites, where previously you're lucky if you can do a dozen or so on the same samples, but now you can do hundreds and thousands of measurements on the same sample at the same time uh, through multiplexing and through uh, advances in mass spec and NMR approaches uh, in the metabolomic space. Despite the hype, uh, I feel there's a lot of groundwork still to be done uh, in terms of being able to gather and collate all that data uh, initially before we get to, you know, see the utility of different compartments and different tissue compartments. Because it depends on the disease area that you work with and depends on the biology you're interested in. 
different depart tissue departments could contribute differently to the effect that you see in, for example, you know, intuitively hemological and metabolic um, diseases probably work really well in plasma and also in, you know, uh, the exosome space. Whilst, you know, other diseases, um, if you're going into the, that might be sort of brain specific or um, uh, eye specific or, or other tissue specific areas where you need to get to that tissue in order to see any interesting uh, biologically and clinically meaningful uh, associations uh, and effects. Really interesting. Your comment earlier about just in general computation power um i i think that it's enabling amazing work in in biology and i i think in particular like you said the the blood as a target i think there's a lot of really interesting um biomarkers that can be derived uh so it's incredible what you do i think it's uh mind-blowing to kind of think about like all of these things actually um, happening in real time in the body. And we're just getting snippets in time as we uh, gather more and more data. It's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, the most fascinating thing I find is how thing, quickly things evolve. In the 90s, people couldn't do it at scale. It just wasn't, the technology's not there. But now you can do things at thousand, tens of thousand, and also in the genetic space, tens of millions. That's where is extraordinary and we don't know in the next five years how that's going to develop because it during the you know my years of my phd there's also this dilemma do you wait a, a while to have something better that you know is, you know do you wait for the next iphone 10 that's going to come up in next in two years time or do you commit now commit the money now and buy but and purchase the product or purchase the iphone or get the sequencing done now so it, it it's also uh, an in interesting question uh, to dwell on from resource planning as well. Where do you see the, the field going in the next five years? It's already happening is that, you know, there's sample sizes going to get a lot larger. Now we're working with bio banks at the sizes, you know, half a million uh, or hundreds of thousands. Uh, and now since UK bio bank, uh, there's so many bio banks that are emerging all over the place across the world. So the scale of data is going to increase by magnitude, at least. The amount of ancestry is going to you know, get a lot wider. And the amount of information we're collecting on each sample or each person is also a lot wider with you know, digital technology. Now we're able to do you know, things remotely and digitally uh, to collect a lot of information. But also the other omics I was talking about, you know, like proteomics, metabolomics, um, and also transcriptomics, those data, are, you know, you can accumulate many more of those data as well. I think that the the bottleneck at the moment is not necessarily the the raw computational power, is but is how we really make it the most efficient way to analyze something. Despite you know the the increase in computation, the cost comes from you know there's a cost to that. There's a cost to getting things onto the cloud, and the financial cost is not trivial to run things, but also the carbon footprint is also non-trivial as well. Uh, you know, the amount of trees you're burning to, you know, to get to train the model, it, it's, you know, it's something that's underestimated uh, and also underappreciated. So I think there's a lot of advances to be made there uh, in the coming years. Interesting. And it's still um, sticking to the large scale uh, multiomic data. 
Um, could you talk to us um, a little bit about the challenges and limitations that you currently face while working with these large scale data? So, the, I mean, there's uh, various sorts of challenges. Uh, so, you know, the challenges could come from the technical aspects, but also from, you know, just biological aspects as well. Uh, and then there's also what's the best way to analyze something from a methods point of view. There's so many different ways to do things. How do you go about choosing uh, the optimal way that you want to analyze things? I think that a lot of the hard sort of bottlenecks comes from, you know, variation. And the variation can come from both technical aspects where you measure the same thing twice, you get a slightly different answer, you know. It's, you know, even if you measure someone's height, you get a slight variation, but that variation is so small, small, it doesn't really impact. You're going to get a very accurate estimate of someone's height and weight through measuring it once. But sometimes in biology, this, or if you measure someone's blood component for things, you know, whether it's, you know, blood cell counts, biochemistry, uh, proteomics, metabolomics, whatever you, you name it, there's a lot of variability if you're measuring the same thing twice. That comes from the technical limitations of the assay you're using, for example. And then there's also the biological variability within a person, you know, and that biological variability could just be through sampling. You sample that you know, through different at different sites on the body, uh, like the two different parts of the blood or uh, um, blood from two different places, you might get different things or different bottles when you aliquot it, you know, from a tube that you collect when you uh, uh, obtain someone's blood. And that introduces a biological variability uh, as well, you know, person to person variability, you know. Uh, and then you also have a time component that's currently very, very sort of underappreciated, which is a big challenge because we know for sure, you know, there are circadian rhythms, there are biological clocks where someone's protein could vary over time, could vary during the day and during a year and during a month, uh, especially uh, in female reproductive biology, there's a monthly cycle uh, uh, as well. And at the moment, because of various sort of feasibility and cost limitations, we're only taking a one-time point for a person. So you can see how that is not representative of that person's state across that day, maybe not even across that weekend, not across that month or not across that year. And that variability obviously is not captured either. And that introduces additional sort of uncertainty in terms of the value you obtained because that value is subject to change. And being able to account for that is obviously a very difficult thing because there is no ground truth for it right now. And then the third sort of aspect of the challenges really comes from when you do things at scale. I mean, when you do a small experiment, there's less chance for you know batch effects to occur and batch effects to implement because you're running things on one plate. You're only doing one plate's worth of experiment. But if you want to do things at scale, such as you know in the bar bank. You have, you know, hundreds of plates that are done, hundreds of, you know, thousands of pipettings that are done, although autom automated, but, you know, there's a lot of procedures and a lot of steps that you do in a single experiment. And then you can see even, you know, at that pipeline, there's a lot of points where things can go slightly wrong or things that, you know, that could fail QC or some steps that might not go according to what you planned. And some of it is unexpected as well. You know, you despite if you put something and put it to scale, uh, 
it might not always work end to end. I mean, for a large amount of things, you know, when you go to meetings and conferences, there's always bound to be some tech aspect that goes wrong as well. You know, despite in theory, like everything should work. There's no nothing broken. But when you put it into production and when you, you know, try to do it for, for real, things doesn't, there's always something that can go wrong in the process. And when you're doing it at scale, I think these are becoming, uh, these are no longer sort of trivial and negligible risks that you're dealing with. And be able to, to firstly find these issues, you know, batch effects, plate effects, for example, uh, and differentiate those issues from true biological variation, which also confounds what you're seeing, uh, is a very difficult task because there is no gold standard and there's no uh, sort of one way to do that. And then lastly, it comes from different methods being developed that all do similar things and be able to optimize and choose the best method for the data at hand and for the research question you're trying to answer, it's becoming also more and more difficult because, you know, if, even with neural networks and with, you know, uh, machine learning models, the different parameters and hyperparameters and different layouts and different neural network layouts that you could do is all uh, sometimes a little bit subjective. So it's difficult to hone in on one specific setup that works for everything. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Speaking of Mobile. We wanted to take a quick moment to tell you about the Invitrogen School of Molecular Biology. It is a great educational hub for molecular biology with rich and reliable technical content designed for new and experienced molecular biologists alike. Check it out today at thermofisher.com forward slash ISMB. And now, back to our conversation. That, that kind of leads me to one more question. Clini clinical medicine has, especially from like a drug design and drug development standpoint, has always kind of leaned on, um, I guess, working with different models and then ultimately moving into clinical trials. And everything we've talked about so far in the omics space has really been um, uh, uh, kind of around the in silico aspect uh, of medicine. So I'm curious, as time goes on, how much of um, do you see for planning for drug development is going to shift more into that digital space and then um, maybe perhaps move move away uh, from some of the uh, either in vitro or even in vivo uh, experiments that are that that have historically been done to date? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question actually because i think with emer emergent of digital data and the large-scale digital data especially in, in humans but also the current sort of uh interest in sort of digital data and machine learning and uh, uh, large-scale analyses i think more and more um uh, places are becoming more aware and want to leverage uh, this this resource but however i think you know in vitro and the in vivo experiment has come a long way it's been but you know clearly the aspects of it that has worked well uh and has been you know tried and tested so there's bound to be you know um it, it's there to it's not going to go away it's not i think it's more how we integrate the two together rather than trying to get one to replace the other 
Uh, I think being able to merge the evidence in an unbiased way is where the challenge lies. Uh, but now I think, you know, even in a vitro in vivo space, there's a lot of advances being made as well. For example, you know, CRISPR technology is something that's occurred in this decade, essentially. And that's, you know, really revolutionized the in vitro as well as the in vivo space. So I, I don't think is one would go out of fashion in favor of the other. Uh, but I do feel it really is also contextualized on the disease at hand because in vivo and in vitro um, experiments, you want to do something that's representative of a human disease pathophysiology or a disease mechanism or disease model. And some diseases are harder to model than others, especially the diseases where there tend to be more bespoke to humans. There is no you know, mouse equivalent uh, just purely because, you know, the, the way humans are distinct, uh, both in terms of their environment, the, you know, the, the social interactions, uh, as well as, you know, things that are less likely to generalize across other animal species. Uh, so I think a lot of those diseases would definitely be harder compared to something that's more fundamental that might be uh, translatable uh, across different species uh, where, you know, you have models for cardiovascular disease and potentially some, you know, movement disorders and also for, you know, respiratory diseases, all sorts of diseases, but there are models that work well and then there's models that work less well. So I think the ones, the in vitro models where, you know, there's been tried and tested models that reflect human biology very well are there to complement uh, what we do. But it's really how we weigh the evidence that's going to be the challenge. Do you, for example, if the, the big data, you know, epidemiology or human data gives you one answer and then in vitro in vivo te- um, experiments gave you a different answer. How do you combine those two together? How do you weigh that up? Do you believe in one or the other? I think that's something we don't have enough data for and we not be, we won't be able to accumulate that data at enough pace and scale to answer that question empirically. So I think that's where the, the the challenge will be uh so i think the jury's still out on you know how we wait how we put different weights to those different elements uh not necessarily in clinical trials but also in all sorts of um in, in the scientific field in general i think great uh, and um steve's question was in regards drug development drug development mine will be about diagnostics and precision medicine, going back to precision medicine, how do you see the, the, the field of multiomics impact the future of uh, personalized medicine and diagnostics? Yeah. Um, so I, I personally feel, uh, you know, if you look at, you know, the, 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 the amount of evidence that's accumulating over the last few years, there's definitely additional values, additional, additional impact in integrating, you know, omics right in addition to the standard demographic and standard uh, biochemistry or uh, biomarkers that are used clinically right now. Because if you supplement, you know, these experimental omics approaches, if you supplement that data into the existing um, sort of gold standard, if you like to call it, you know, uh, predictors for various diseases, you see, you see an improvement. 
there's no doubt that you see a marginal improvement. The improvement might not be as drastic as people you know hope it to be, but there's definitely improvement there. So, and that's you know generalized. There's been cases where it's been generalized across different cohorts. So, the the value, the additional predictive value is there to stay, and that's obviously intuitive because you're measuring a lot more things. Of course, you're going to see a gain. I think the difficulty comes in in terms of being able to pick which of those proteins or which of those metabolites that you should consistently measure in the clinical use domain, right? Because in research, the threshold might be different to what you use clinically because your margin of error that you're able to tolerate is different. Uh, and also it depends on how severe the disease is and what's the impact of predicting someone with high risk of disease in terms of the downstream management and the downstream prevention and downstream clinical management. And obviously, when you, in the clinical space, you want to be sure, right? Whilst in the research space, you might have a slight more tolerance for error because there's less of a direct impact on human health uh, on someone. So that difference in threshold uh, really makes it difficult to convert what you find in the research space into what you have, you, what into what you use clinically, because the, this tolerance for risk is different. Because a specific, if, it, if I told you I, there's an eighty-five percent or ninety percent chance of you get having increased risk of getting certain disease, and I'm ninety percent or eighty percent sure of it, in the research space, or if something that doesn't really impact you clinically. Um, then that's something you might go, cool, oh, that's, I think that's useful to know, right, to, 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 to a person. But if, you, if I told you, you know, I'm 90% sure, 80% sure clinically in the clinical domain, that means, you know, there's 15% of error that I'm not sure about. And if I told you you're high risk, I'm going to have to intervene on these. And obviously, these interventions come up with, it, come with their own risk. Then you can see how I'm suddenly not so confident about implementing that anymore one is for information that i would like to know and statistically i'll be more right than wrong likely to be right than wrong but in the clinical space i want to be 99 percent sure rather than 90 percent sure that i've got this you know increased risk or raised uh, biomarker except for example for a disease i think that's where the the impact from translation from research, epidemiological research or basic science research into clinical areas has been the difficulty. But because the threshold is different, uh, because you know we have to limit the amount of harm we do to patients. I mean, the first rule of you know, clinical medicine is do no harm. So whilst you know, that in the, in the research space, and if you especially come from, from a computational background, you, you're more interested in expectations, you know, on average, as long as I'm doing better than chance or I'm doing better than what's currently available, that's good. Whereas in, in medicine, you, you have to bring in the additional weighting in terms of the harm that could potentially be caused. And some of that is actually quite difficult to quantify as well, objectively. Right, and the, but on the other side, you will have the chance of um, increasing prevention rates. Like, uh, oh, you are on the path to developing, you know, hypertension. You know, you should take these measurements now. And uh, so, um, don't you think that can also, on the other hand, help on on the preventive side? Absolutely, I think there's still a lot of trials, or you know, 
um, to be done in terms of prevention to see the utility and efficacy of that, you know, in an unbiased way. Um, and obviously, you know, you have screening programs for various diseases, but some of the screening program, uh, if it, you know, in a research space works, but when you employ it clinically, uh, the efficacy is the quality of life, you know, that's improved over time is not as different uh, as it's not drastically different. It's not enough to make an impact to justify the intervention that you're making, because whatever you intervention you make has its own risks as well that you're introducing to to a patient. So that I think that the, the the paradox is that there is value, of course, in doing this. If you implemented, you know, if you integrated multiomic approaches into disease prediction or into you know uh, a, a various sort of prevention or uh, prediction algorithms, you're going to get a gain on average most of the time. Uh, but there'll be people where that doesn't work, that's incorrect. And that small population would suffer and you can't afford that in a clinical space. I think there's, I think there's, there should be a lot of studies that should be done to evaluate these scores into you know, multiple cohorts and multiple population to demonstrate there is a, you know, a clear improvement over what you have right now. That I think is, would, convince a lot of the you know the practitioners to adopt you know uh, the uh, the these multiomic um additional multiomic data into this but obviously there's another aspect is the cost the health burden and the cost uh, element that's on the health service in order to do these because you know these tests if you're going to enroll it clinically from a health planning perspective is not necessarily going to be equitable and it's not necessarily going to be affordable because they're not exactly cheap tests. And then you run into the issue of, you know, equitable and equality and how you, you know, divide the resources up so that everyone's getting fair and equal access to, to this. So that there's a scientific element, but there's also, uh, you know, a resource element uh, involved as well. I think definitely over you know, in the next 10 years, you're going to see more and more biomarkers being integrated into risk score models. Uh, I think I firmly believe there's value, follow genuinely clinical value in doing that. But, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces that still, uh, and a lot of, you know, different parties and point of views that needs to be considered before you make it into part of a clinical guideline, for example. It's really interesting and a, and a great question, Gabriel. Um, that that almost kind of to me begs the question for where cell and gene therapy is headed, right? Because we're at this really interesting inflection point where we can now go inside the cell, right, and and with with our drugs that that we design, right, or biologics and that for a long time was something that was taboo it was something that you didn't do because you you know focused on extracellular membrane receptors for for example i'm curious uh how do you reconcile that how do you reconcile the consideration that we do now have personalized medicine coming out that's available um and then the idea that there are are those cost constraints and uh equity equitability issues um to to consider as well um there's a, there's a lot that goes into that 
I'm just curious your your opinion of what it's going to look like over the next 10 years as it does become more personalized. Yeah, I think that's a really, really tough question. <laughs> that's a, and depends who you ask. You might be getting, you know, different answers depending on what hat you put on. Uh, if you, I mean, if you, from a pure science perspective, or you know, there's benefits clearly in in doing that. But then the the but it, the the ethical dilemma really revolves around you know how how you best distribute there because not everyone's going to be able to benefit from that and also different countries you know are different um uh different points as well in terms of how equitable things are and i mean if you look at you know the covid vaccine for example you know the the, the distribution of vaccines is probably from scientific scientific perspective if you treat everyone equally probably hasn't been optimized but you know there, there's so many forces uh, um, in play here that what what you see is it's something that's very complicated <laughs> so it's it's difficult um, to to put a you know the a, a way to sort of best um, to best distribute and answer that question uh, to, quite frankly I think personally coming you know from a science background I like to see the, the, the field evolving I like to see you know to see whether things work or not and how you distribute that technology is probably outside a scientist's um, area of, uh, of expertise. It's probably up to the resource planners. But uh, I think from a scientist's perspective, you're interested in whether something brings value to, you know, to, to, to the field, to, to life sciences, to medicine, to people's lives. Does, does it improve? I think it's similar, you know, if you go back in history, you know, with advances of penicillin, scientists, you know, care about does penicillin work or does, you know, a drug or does something work? Whether how much you sell the drug for, um, you know, or, or how you distribute the drug and how you produce it and how you distribute who should get it, I think is something that's probably out the remits uh, of what we do in science. Yeah, but it, it's a very important um, thing to consider. Uh, but I think there, I, I think there's no easy answer to that. Certainly, I, I figured I'd take the opportunity since you are both a clinician and a scientist to uh, get get some of your perspective there. So yeah, thank you. I know that's a, that's a really long question. Maybe better had at a bar over many uh, uh, <laughs> beverages and <laughs> ways to solve the world crises. <laughs> Yes, that sounds good, Steve. Uh, um, ben, I asked that, this question to every single guest that comes in this podcast, which is their um, uh, opinion and what is the most important ingredient uh, for their success in their careers. So would you mind telling us what is the most important one for you? I mean, I could think of several, but the one I I think the one most important trait, you know, it's, it's, I think is, it's more about being passionate and, and believing what you do without being affected by external influences. So I don't think you should pursue success as something in itself, but in just do what you believe and you're passionate about and what you want to do. 
if you're interested in, for example, uh, a mechanism or, you know, a, a research study or something that really sort of, you know, gets you up in the morning, then you're probably along the right tracks in doing something that you feel is meaningful to yourself. That might not necessarily lead to, you know, success in, you know, different ways that you want to measure it, however, uh, you know, by, to, by today's standards, but at least you can, you know, look at, look at yourself, you know, look back on yourself and go, what I did at the time I felt was worthwhile or what I did, you know, what was the thing I pursued was worthwhile. I think that's something that defines what you feel uh, is successful. Then I think that's really what's important. It's not about what other people define what success is. I think it's all about when you looking back, if you, if you're able to leap forward in time, uh, you know, at your funeral, and go look back on yourself in your life and go what i did there i would have done again i think that's something uh you've achieved um that you've proved to yourself you've done something worthwhile awesome thanks for your perspective on that it's great sounded didn't uh, didn't ex <laughs> didn't ex yeah i was gonna say you didn't expect the uh existential questions on the, the science <laughs> podcast <laughs> right <laughs> But it's we, always... we like to we like to keep the uh, the guests guessing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, there's so many cases in science instances where people do the work and are not necessarily rewarded in the same in in proportion. Uh, you know, if you look at the case, you know, DNA, you know, um, GFP, you know, there's so many things where you know success is not doesn't hard work and you know doing meaningful things doesn't necessarily lead to you know success in double quotation marks but i feel that doesn't mean what you did wasn't worthwhile to yourself that was dr ben sun head of biomarker genetics at biogen in cambridge massachusetts if you'd like to hear even more of today's conversation you can view the extended video version of this interview by visiting the url in the episode notes and if you enjoyed listening to our interview with Ben, try to share something interesting that you learned with a friend or colleague this week. We hope you brighten their day and pique their curiosity. This episode was produced by Matt Ferris, Sarah Berganti, and Matthew Stock.